Psalm 4. I'm going to read this psalm in its entirety. Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety. Let me pray. Father, we come before you now seeking stillness, quiet, rest, and safety in you, our Heavenly Father. We come, Father, acknowledging that we're distracted by the many things, the many burdens, the many sins that we've committed throughout the week, and so we Cast those upon you now, asking that you would still our hearts so that we can hear you speak to us through your word. We're thankful that even though we have no right to come in and of ourselves, we can come boldly because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we come expectantly, knowing that you will speak to us, and we ask that you would do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, in the medical community, it's basically a uh, universally accepted fact that one of the key indicators for how good your health is, is the amount of sleep that you get each night. And so historically, it wasn't out of the ordinary for your doctor to ask you when you went and saw him, so how are you sleeping these days? And the sad reality is that currently, America as a whole isn't sleeping so great these days. Matter of fact, I went on the, the website of the CDC this past week, and according to the most recent data, around 35% of all Americans get less sleep than they actually should. And nearly 10% of all Americans experience ongoing insomnia. That number in particular, I wasn't aware of. And so one of the things that this, this should tell us about our culture is that we've got a serious rest problem. And what I mean by that isn't simply that we can't sleep, although that's true as well. I mean, the facts are clear enough. Even more importantly, what it means is that we can't rest. Because behind the symptom, behind the lack of sleep, is the even deeper issue of not being at peace. And you see, that's not ultimately a physical problem. That's ultimately a spiritual problem. Now, that's not to say that there aren't physical factors that play into one's restlessness as well. So don't hear me saying that you shouldn't go to the doctor if you can't get a good night's sleep, because there's certainly a place for that. But even more importantly, what we as Christians must be aware of are the spiritual causes of this epidemic. And in order to do that, What we need to do is to approach the spiritual problem much like a doctor approaches the physical problem. And what I mean by that is that we need to do two things. First, we need to diagnose the problem. And then second, we need to prescribe a remedy for the problem. And you see, what's amazing about Psalm 4 is that in it, God has actually given us both. 
He's provided us with both a diagnosis and a prescription for our restlessness, for our lack of inner peace. And so what we're going to find then, as we look at this psalm, is that God, as the perfect doctor of the soul, has given David a spiritual prescription for peace so that he can rest in the midst of his distress. And it's a prescription that through the preservation of his holy word, God has now graciously given to us as well. And the very essence of that prescription is that there are three spiritual realities that we need to take a hold of, uh, that we need to consume almost like a, a medicine. And so what we'll find then is that we need to take hold of our true confidence in verses 1 through 3. We need to take hold of our true calling in verses 4 and 5. And lastly, we need to take hold of our true comfort in verses 6 through 8. So let's look then first at our need to take hold of our true confidence. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now the first thing that we should notice here is that similar to Psalm 3, which we looked at last week, Psalm 4 also has a superscript. It's got that, that heading up top that's in all caps. But the difference is that unlike Psalm 3, the superscript here doesn't give us the, the situation of the author. Instead, what this heading gives us is actually musical direction. Because what this superscript is showing us is that this psalm was written in order to be directed by the, the master of the choir, who was essentially like a conductor. And what it also tells us is that the choir should be accompanied by stringed instruments. Now, I don't know exactly what those were back then, but they're not the kind of stringed instruments that we think of today. Now, that may all seem rather insignificant to you, but it's actually not. Because what it reminds us of is the fact that these psalms were written for the corporate worship of Israel. In other words, these were psalms that Israel was given by God through the pen of the psalmist so that Israel could then sing them in worship of him. Which is why, by the way, if you look at church history, the Psalms have always been central to the church's worship. Because historically, the church didn't primarily go off and write their own songs. Instead, what we see is that they devoted themselves to singing the songs that God had already given them in the Psalter. Now, how that should inform our worship today, we don't exactly have time to, to sit back and explore, although it's certainly interesting to think about. But here's the point. The Psalms were recorded and have now been passed down to us by God for our worship, both individually and corporately. And so the admonition here then is for us to receive them from the Lord and then use them as he intended in our worship. And then what this superscript also reveals to us is that this psalm was written by David. And so what we know then from this heading is that this psalm was to be sung by Israel with a choir. It was to be accompanied by stringed instruments, and it was written by David. So that's what we do know about this psalm. But again, what we don't know is the situation that David was in when he wrote it. And you know, I actually think that that's intentional. And here's why. I think it's intentional so that we can more easily hear our own cry in David's words. Because that's one of the primary reasons that God has given us this book. The Psalms were meant to serve as the words that God has given us. His own words. So that we can then speak and pray 
and sing back to him in whatever situation that we find ourselves. And so if we're happy, guess what? There are psalms of joy for us to sing to him. And if we're sad, there are psalms of lament for us to pray to him. And if we're afraid, there are psalms about fear for us to cry out to him. And the same is also true if we're repentant or oppressed by our enemies or we feel abandoned by God or whatever the case may be, there is always a psalm that God has provided for us. Which is exactly why, by the way, John Calvin in his commentary on the Psalms referred to the Psalms as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And what Calvin meant by that is that whatever our souls are experiencing, God has graciously given us words in the Psalms so that we can then voice that experience back to Him. And what I hope you can see is how incredibly gracious this is of God. Because essentially what we're saying here is that God has given us the Psalms in order to deepen and strengthen our relationship with Him. And so the question that we should then be asking ourselves is, well, is this how I approach the Psalms? Is this how I view them? Is this how I use them in my own worship time? Because as children of the living God, that's exactly why they've been given to us. Now, having said all that, even though the superscript doesn't give us David's situation here, David does go on to tell us what he's experiencing as he writes this psalm. Because in verse 1, he tells us that he's in distress. And then if we jump down to verse 2, we see the cause of his distress. David says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now, I realize that David is still being a a bit vague here, but his general situation is made plain to us because what David is telling us is that his enemies are causing him distress by ruining his reputation through lies. And apparently, it's been happening for quite some time now because David asked the question, How long will you continue to do this, O men? But what's interesting to take note of is the fact that the word honor there in verse 2 can also be translated as glory or reputation in the Hebrew. And the reason that's interesting is because if you remember back in Psalm 3 and verse 3, David refers to God as what? David calls God my glory. And so what that tells us then is that David could be saying the same thing here. He could be referring to God as my glory. And if that's the case, then what David would be saying to his enemies is, How long shall God, who is my glory, Be turned into shame by you, O my enemies. But you see, the other way that it could possibly be translated is reputation. And if that were the case, then what David would be saying is, How long shall my reputation be turned into shame? Which would make sense in light of verse 3 of Psalm 4, because David seems to be defending himself there against the lies that his enemies are telling about him. So which is it then? Is David talking about God here as my glory? Or is David talking about his reputation? Because it could easily be translated either way. Well, after quite a bit of study this past week, I've come to the conclusion, this is always the big letdown, right? That it it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter which way you end up translating it. Because no matter which way you go, the verse ends up saying the exact same thing. Because you see, as the Lord's anointed, which is exactly what Psalm 2 calls David, and as one with whom God has entered into covenant with in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's reputation is now wrapped up in God's reputation. And God's reputation is now wrapped up in David's reputation. Because David is God's representative on the earth. In other words, if you attacked David's reputation, then what you were also doing is you were attacking God's reputation 
as well. And so the reality that we're seeing here then is that God has committed himself so completely to David that whatever happens to the reputation of the one then also happens to the reputation of the other. Because that's exactly what it means to be in covenant with the Lord. And so what that tells us then is that David is ultimately in distress because wicked men are seeking to dishonor the Lord and his anointed through their empty words and their vain threats. And that is why David is in distress. And you see, it's because of this distress that from a literary standpoint, Psalm 4 is considered a a psalm of lament. Now, that's the type of psalm it is, because David is saddened by his enemies and their shameful lies against the Lord and against his anointed. And yet at the same time, interestingly enough, this psalm is also classified as a psalm of confidence. In other words, this psalm is both a a psalm of lament and a psalm of confidence. Because as we're going to see here in just a moment, David is brimming with confidence. I mean, he's almost buoyant in the midst of his distress. And you see, the reason he's so buoyant is because of where his confidence is found. And where David finds his confidence is in taking hold of three truths that the Lord has revealed to him. First of all, in verse 1, notice how David refers to God as he cries out to him in prayer. He calls him the God of my righteousness. And when David refers to God this way, what I think he's doing is he's reminding himself of three truths. Sorry, I'm going to do this to you the whole sermon. We've got three points within three points within three points. Hang with me. I try to make it really clear. He's reminding himself of three truths regarding God's righteousness. And the first truth is that God is righteous in and of himself. In other words, righteousness is who God is. It's his character. And so what that means then is that there's no standard of righteousness outside of God that that you can point to. Because God himself is that standard. And so if you want to know if anyone or anything is in fact righteous, then the standard by which you measure them is God, because God himself is righteous. So first of all, David is reminding himself of God's character. And then second of all, he's reminding himself that God is a righteous judge. And this really builds on the previous truth, because if God is in fact righteous, then naturally his judgments are also going to be righteous. And you see, knowing that, they gave David unspeakable confidence. Because since that's true, he knows that he will be vindicated in the courtroom of God before his enemies. Because as a righteous judge, God will declare David innocent and his enemies guilty. Which then leads us to the third truth that David is reminding himself of. And this is perhaps the most shocking. Because what David is saying here is that God is David's righteousness. In other words, what David knows is that in and of himself, he is unrighteous. Because if God's character is the standard of righteousness, and David's character is then measured against that standard, What David knows is that he's not going to measure up. Instead, what it will reveal is that David is sinful and unrighteous and depraved. And so what David realizes then is that he is in desperate need of a righteousness that's outside of himself. Indeed, he needs God's righteousness to be counted as his own. And you see, what David understands is that in The gospel, that's exactly what he has. Because in the gospel, God's righteousness has now been imputed to David's account. Now, how that can actually be, we're going to have to wait. We're going to see that a little bit later on in the sermon. But for now, it's enough for you to know that David sees God as his righteousness. And so you see, these are the three truths that David is reminding himself of by calling God the God of my righteousness. He's remembering the truth that God is righteous in his character, 
that God is a righteous judge who will clear David and condemn his enemies, and that God himself is David's perfect righteousness. So now that we've looked at the first reason for David's confidence in his distress, now let's look at the second reason for David's confidence. And the second reason that David has confidence is because the Lord has delivered him in the past. Because if you look at verse 1 again, what you'll see is that David prays, you have given me relief when I was in distress. And David's word choice here is, is really interesting because it paints a rather vivid picture for us. Because in the Hebrew, that phrase, given me relief, is actually one word. And what it literally means is to enlarge or to widen. And so the picture here then is, is of childbirth. It's as if David is in the womb of his distress, waiting for an opening so that he can get out. Pretty vivid picture that he gives us here, isn't it? And so in essence, what David is saying here is, listen, Lord, I know that you've delivered me before. And I remember the relief that you've brought me in the past. And so I'm confident that you will do the same today. So Lord, please hear my cry and deliver me. So again, do you see David's confidence here? I mean, certainly he's, he's pleading with the Lord. But the reason why he's pleading with the Lord is because he knows that the Lord will answer him. And so that's why David prays for relief here. It's because he knows full well that God will be gracious to him again, even as he's been in the past. And then the third and final reason why David has confidence in his distress is because the Lord has set him apart. Notice what he says in verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, if we're not careful here, what we can easily do is misread this verse as though David is, is being arrogant. Because it can almost sound like David is saying that God has found him to be godly in and of himself, and thus God, as a result, has set him apart. In other words, we can misinterpret this as David saying that he's earned God's favor. And so that's why he now has God's ear. But that's clearly not what David is saying here. And all we have to do to prove that is to go back to verse 1. Because whose righteousness has given David a right standing with God? It's not David's righteousness. It's God's righteousness that has now been counted as David's. In other words, this isn't David boasting in his own works. Because that would be completely arrogant and unfounded. Instead, this is David boasting in the grace of God. And so rather than being a show of arrogance, this is actually an indication of David's deep humility. But you see, at the same time that this is incredibly humble of David, it's also incredibly offensive, especially in our culture today. Because who in the world does David think that he is? To say that the Lord only hears him when he prays. And not everyone when they pray to whichever God they're praying to. David, that's too exclusive. David, how could you be so narrow-minded? Because you see, in a religiously pluralistic society like we live in today, this is incredibly offensive. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Because it's true. And you see, because it's true, what this truth instilled in David was a humble confidence. And I know that sounds like a, an oxymoron, but let me explain what I mean. On the one hand, it instilled humility in David because he knew that he had not been set apart by the Lord because of anything in him. Instead, the Lord had graciously set apart David for his own glory. But then on the other hand, it also instilled confidence in David. Because he knew that the Lord was for him. And so David was confident that nothing could touch him except that which the Lord allowed. In other words, what David knew is that he was invincible until the Lord was done with him. And then on top of that, 
David also knew that the Lord would answer his prayers, but not his enemies. And so that's why we can see both humility and confidence in David at the same time. But you see, these are the three reasons why David was able to have confidence in his distress. It's because he took hold of the truth that the Lord was his righteousness and that the Lord had delivered him in the past and that the Lord had set him apart for himself. And brothers and sisters, we desperately need to take hold of these truths as well. Because the Lord is our righteousness today, just as he was David's righteousness back then. And so as a result then, we can have confidence that because the Lord is righteous, he will always do what is right. And that's good news because when we're sinned against, and when we're wronged, and when we see unbelievers railing against the Lord and His anointed, we can take that injustice and we can cast it on the Lord, knowing with absolute certainty that He will make it right. In other words, we can know that God is for us because He has covenanted with us. Indeed, He's united Himself to us. And because of that, our good is inseparable from His glory. And vice versa. But you see, our confidence isn't simply that God is righteous in His character. As David reminds us here, our confidence is also that God is our righteousness. Because even though it seems too good to be true, God's righteousness is now counted as our own. And so that's why we can come before Him in boldness in prayer. That's why we can come before Him in boldness in worship this morning. It's because no matter what others have said about us throughout the week, and no matter how sinful we know ourselves to be, we can know that God is for us and loves us and hears our prayers because God has given us His righteousness. We can also have confidence Because we know that the Lord has delivered us in the past. Which is exactly why, by the way, we should make it a regular habit of ours to recall the specific ways that the Lord has delivered us in our lives. Because our tendency is to forget our past deliverances and then become hopeless in our current distress. But you see, that's not what David does here. Instead, he, remember, he finds confidence in remembering how the Lord has been faithful in the past. And that encourages his faith that the Lord will do so again in the future. And brothers and sisters, you and I should be doing the exact same thing. And lastly, we can also have confidence because God has set us apart for himself. And the reason that God has set us apart isn't because of anything in us. It's because of who He is. And that should give us unspeakable confidence because what that means is that we didn't earn God's special attention by anything that we did or didn't do. And so as a result, we also can't lose God's special attention by anything that we do or don't do. Because our being set apart isn't based on who we are. Instead, it's based entirely on who God is. And so do you see the confidence that God has given to us, brothers and sisters? It's absolutely breathtaking. It's incredible. But let's not just look at it. And let's not just admire it. Ooh, isn't it so pretty? No, let's take hold of it. Because anything else that you may try to grasp for confidence, is nothing but a delusion. It's like trying to grasp water to only have it slip through your fingers. Because the Lord alone is the true confidence that we need. So now that we've looked at our need to take hold of our true confidence, next, let's look at our need to take hold of our true calling. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me again. Be angry and do not sin. 
Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices to God and put your trust in the Lord. Now, what David is doing here in these two verses is he's, he's giving a series of imperatives or commands. And as we read them, the question that we should naturally find ourselves asking is, well, well who exactly is David speaking to here? And after deliberating over this for quite some time, I mean, truth be told, I feel like three-quarters of my time in studying this psalm was just asking, now, who is David speaking to here? Because it can get a little confusing. But after uh, deliberating over this for quite some time this past week, the conclusion that I've come to is that David is actually speaking to a couple different people. First of all, and perhaps primarily, I think he's speaking to his enemies, to those who have caused him distress by being against the Lord and against his anointed. And contextually that makes sense because you can easily go back to verse 2 where David begins to address his enemies and see that this naturally flows all the way to the end of verse 5. So in other words, I think David is primarily speaking to his enemies here. And what he's calling them to do is to repent. And then secondarily, I also think that David is speaking to his followers to those who follow him, even as David follows the Lord. And the reason I think that is because the commands that David give here aren't just what you do when you first repent and believe. These are also things that you continue to do as you repent and believe the rest of your life as you walk with the Lord. And obviously, David himself would be included in that group as well. So in other words, I think primarily but not exclusively, David is addressing his enemies, calling them to repent and believe in the Lord. And then secondarily, David is also addressing his followers and himself, calling them to continue to walk in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. And then thirdly, I also think that we are being addressed here. Because the reality is that we are now the covenant people of God. And so this psalm instructs us now, even as it instructed Israel then. So now that we've seen who David is addressing in these verses, let's actually go on to see what he's calling us to do here. And what we're going to see is that David is essentially calling us to obey four commands. Four commands. And so the first command that David calls us to obey is to be angry and not sin. And as odd as it may sound, what David is actually commanding us to do here is to be angry. And the reason David commands that is because the reality is that's it, that it's inevitable that we're going to get angry. And the reason it's inevitable is because what is anger? I mean, have you ever actually stopped and tried to define anger? It's not an easy thing to do. But simply put, anger is a perceived injustice. It's a perceived injustice. And so given that definition, you can see clearly why it's inevitable that we're going to get angry. Right? It's because every single day of your life, either you are unjustly treated by others, or you see someone else who is treated unjustly by others, or you yourself unjustly treat others. And on most days, probably all three happen, right? In other words, we are always constantly surrounded by reasons to be angry. And what David is saying is that we should be angry about those injustices because God himself is angry with those injustices. But then at the same time, what David also says is that in our anger, and this is the hard part, right, is that we should not sin. And what he means by that, quite simply, is that we should handle our anger in a godly way. And so what that looks like is that we should be self-controlled, self-possessed in our anger. We shouldn't be flying off the handle and declaring war on everyone and everything. And we should also be slow to anger, as James tells us. And that's so important because, I don't know about you, but my tendency is to perceive something as an injustice when in fact it's not. I mean, have you ever done that before? You ever become angry at someone or something that you simply perceived incorrectly? Well, that's exactly why we're told 
to be slow to anger. Now, sadly, we don't have the time to tease everything out that David is talking about here in regards to anger. But what's abundantly clear is that we are to be angry at injustice and yet also not sin in our anger. So that's the first command that David calls us to obey. And then the second command that David calls us to obey is to ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And what I think David is getting at here is that a key to being able to rest and have peace in the midst of distress is to reflect and meditate on God's word. Because that's what allows us to be still and silent in the midst of turmoil. It's knowing who God is and what he's doing and who he promises to be to us and how he promises to be with us and never forsake us. But you see, in order for those truths to to really take deep root in our hearts and to change the way that we interact with the people and situations around us is that we're going to have to steep our minds in those truths. And we're going to need to reflect and meditate on them. Because simply thinking about them once a week on a Sunday morning is not going to cut it, folks. It's got to be happening constantly. And so you see what this verse is bringing us back to then is exactly what David talked about in Psalm 1. Because what does the blessed man do? He meditates on God's law day and night. And that's the exact same idea that David is picking up on here. Now, if that's not convicting enough, then what's equally convicting, if not more so, is David's command to be silent. Because I think we can all agree, as a culture, we are terrible at this, aren't we? We are terrible at being still and silent. Because we've always got to be doing something. And we've always got to be distracting ourselves. And we're always filled with noise. And yet what David is calling us to here is the inner peace and stillness that he experienced in Psalm 131. And listen to how David describes that. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So you see, this is the inner quietude that David is talking about here. And did you notice where he said that his hope was? It's not in himself, and it's not in his circumstances. It is in the Lord. So you see, the second command that David calls us to obey is to reflect on the Word of God and then be silent. And then the third command that David calls us to obey is to offer right sacrifices. We see that in verse 5. And what David is telling us here isn't primarily that our sacrifices need to be offered exactly as God commanded them from a physical standpoint. Now, obviously, that's true as well. But what David is really getting at here is that our hearts need to have the right attitude as we offer our sacrifices. And here's the right attitude. It's to, through the eyes of faith, see beyond the spotless animal that was being slaughtered, And beyond the flesh that was being cut and the blood that was being spilled. And to see in that the redemptive work of the coming Messiah. In other words, it's to see by faith that he would be slaughtered for my sin. And that his life would be spotless in my place. Indeed, it's to see by faith that I need to receive as my righteousness, all that the Messiah would accomplish redemptively in the future. In other words, this takes us all the way back to verse 1 of Psalm 4, because this is how God is my righteousness. It's in His 
Messiah. And so as a result then, that's the only hope that any of us can have. Our only hope of being justified before God and being heard by God is in Jesus, the promised Messiah. And so what David is telling us here then is that we must see this through the eyes of faith if we are to obey God's command to offer right sacrifices. And then the fourth and final command that David calls us to obey is to trust in the Lord. And again, that's in verse 5. And really, this is a summary of everything that he's just commanded us to do. Because the short answer for how we're to take hold of our true calling is to trust in the Lord. Because how do you put your sin to death? And how do you meditate on the word and sit still in silence? And how do you offer right sacrifices? The key to it all is to trust in the Lord. And so really, this one command is a summation of all of the others. But you know, as we come now to apply these truths to ourselves, the first thing that needs to be pointed out here is that for unbelievers, these commands are actually impossible for them to obey. Because they're spiritually dead. And they're given over to false gods and to false confidences. And so God does not hear their prayers. And so that's why we, as believers, need to be on our faces in prayer for them. Because as we love them, and preach the gospel to them, and call them to repentance, even as David does here, God may grant them life. And you see, that's exactly what we long for, isn't it? We long for God to give them spiritual life so that they can repent, and so they can trust in the Lord, and so that they can obey Him. So believers, this is how we're to interact with unbelievers. And then for ourselves, I think that we're all aware of the fact that trusting in the Lord is really where the daily battle is fought, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but Christian, I feel this every single day of my life. I feel like I'm constantly in that battle. And the cause of that battle is that our sin is constantly inclining our hearts to trust in ourselves instead of in the Lord. And so you see what David is calling all of us to do, every single one of us, is to trust in the Lord. Because whether you're a believer or an unbeliever here this morning, you are to trust in the Lord. That's what we're commanded to do. And the way we're to do that is to repent of our sins, And to meditate on who the Lord has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. And to be silent before him. And to receive Jesus by faith as we make use of the means of grace. So what we've looked at then is our need to take hold of our true confidence and our true calling. And lastly, let's look at our need to take hold of our true comfort. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me again. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now again, as we look at these two final verses here, What we're going to see is how David takes hold of his true comfort. And the key to seeing that is to understand where it is that David finds his comfort. And what David makes abundantly clear to us is that his comfort is found in God's presence. And so what I want us to do then is to look at the three ways that David is comforted by God's presence. And the first way that we see that David is comforted is by remembering that God's presence is David's good. And we can see that very clearly in verse 6. But, you know, as we look at verse 6, we have to realize that once again we're faced with the question as to who exactly David is talking to here. 
And in this instance, I think that David is talking to his followers, to his, to his fellow Israelites who are really struggling to know that God is for them and with them given their current circumstances. And so because of that struggle, they're questioning David. And we see that question in verse 6. David's followers ask him, who will show us some good? And the question that they're really asking here is, David, you know all those promises that God made to Abraham and to you? And you know all those blessings that Moses talked about? Where are they? Why aren't they happening? Why isn't God being good to us, David? And since he's not, can at least you do some good for us? So you see, they were pressuring David and asking him to provide some good for them. And yet David doesn't take that responsibility upon himself for even a moment. Because it's not his to bear. Instead, what David does is he points his followers to the one whose presence is their ultimate good. And that's the Lord himself. And we see that in David's response to their question. Because what David does is he cries out the ironic blessing as a prayer to the Lord. He says in verse 6, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And essentially, what David is praying for here is that the Lord would show the people that the Lord is their good. That His favorable presence is the only good that they ultimately need. Because you see, David already knew that. David already knew that God's presence was his good, and that brought him comfort. And so what he's praying for here, then, is that his followers would see that as well. Now, the second way that David is comforted is by taking hold of the truth that God's presence was his joy. And we can see that in verse 7. David says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And what David is saying here is that as he looks at all of the possessions that the world finds joy and satisfaction in, David realizes that they could never be enough for him because the Lord is the joy of David's heart. And do you know who put that joy there? David tells us that the Lord did. The Lord is the one who put that joy in David's heart. And so what that meant for David then is that even as his enemies taunted him and his followers with their abundance of material possessions, David could still remind himself that while the joy of his enemies were completely dependent on those things which are here today and gone tomorrow, David's joy was completely dependent on the Lord, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so because that's true, David could take comfort, true comfort, in knowing that his joy would never change. And then the third and final way that we see that David is comforted is by taking hold of the truth that God's presence was his rest and his peace. And we see that in verse 8. Where David says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now this may seem like a rather insignificant ending to this psalm. But the reality is that it's actually an astonishing fulfillment of a promise that God makes again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Because it's a covenantal promise that David says God has now given to him. And so that's why he can lay down and rest. It's because this promise is finding fulfillment in David. And yet at the same time, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of that covenantal promise didn't come until much, much later. Because it wasn't until Jesus came that this was ultimately fulfilled. And you see, the reason why Jesus came wasn't just to fulfill some of the promises of God. No, He came to fulfill all the promises of God. And that includes all the promises 
in this psalm. And so that's why when Jesus came, He was our righteousness and our deliverance and the one in whom we are set apart. And that's also why Jesus came to be the once for all sacrifice that was offered for us. It's because He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And that's also why Jesus came to be God with us. Our Emmanuel, who is our good, and is our joy, and is our peace. Because you see, it is in Christ Jesus that the Lord has now lifted up the light of His face to shine upon us. And so because that's true, we can now lie down and sleep and dwell in safety. Because brothers and sisters, what I hope that you can now see with crystal clarity is that our prescription for peace is simply living life in Jesus God's promised Messiah. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful that these incredible truths that you have now revealed to us from your word, these incredible gospel truths. And so it is our prayer, Father, that you would now take these truths by the power of your Holy Spirit and that as we meditate on them, And take hold of them. You would use them to conform us from one degree of glory to the next. Into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that as a result of that work of your Spirit in our lives. That your gospel would go forward from this place. With conviction and power. And that many would be brought into the fold as they hear Jesus' voice through ours as we declare his, world, his word to a lost and dying world. Father, do this, we pray, in our midst for your sake and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.